0: Archimedes said that if you give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to balance it, I can move the world. So we have all these le- for leathers, right? You know, and so like like we have a crowbar. I think this is is this called a cat's paw? Okay? So like basically, like if you were to like pull a nail out of here, that would be impressive. But if you pull a nail out of here with a cat's paw, it's no big deal because you have leverage working on your side. We have these long pipes, okay? Like if you ever have a, a nut that's been frozen, you know, and you put your, your open-end wrench on it or you put your uh, ratchet on it and then you stick this over the end and then you... It's like leverage, okay? It's so much easier, right? Or if you have something where you're lifting it really heavy, okay, and you have a, a fulcrum here and you, the further this gets closer to the thing that you're lifting, then you go... And it's relatively easy. It's simple privilege. It doesn't, it's just physics, it just makes sense. And then over here, I'll show you this example. I got this one all set up, you know, kind of reminds me of the fish house days, you know, where you would like leverage something up, you lift it up and then look at that. See, exactly. (laughs) Sierra's with me. I can, can, okay, and then when this whole thing turns fun, okay, well, we're gonna, don't try this at home. Isn't that fun? Leverage physics is so exciting. Oh, thank you very much, Colton. Warm round of applause for Colton. Outstanding, absolutely epic. Page 1007, verse 32, chapter 10 of Hebrews. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. What does it mean to struggle? What does it mean to suffer? Not defining these terms, but what does it mean? The writer of Hebrews says, pain after you were enlightened. Enlightened, a fancy word for conversion, a fancy word for coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So after you became a follower of Jesus Christ, And the writer of Hebrews is describing, he's not telling, he's describing what is true about this group of individuals. After you became followers of Jesus Christ, you endured pain. And you struggled with sufferings. And the text says sometimes it was public, and sometimes it was being partners with those so treated sometimes in the public eye, in view of everyone else, sometimes with a community, which to me also suggests that sometimes the pain, sometimes the struggle was private. And sometimes it was alone. These things are true. This happened, and this is what you did. Now, normally we would expect a biblical author to have this teachable moment at this point, right? Here was the experience, here's what you did, here's what you could have done better. That's what we often play that game with, okay? Well, let's just replay the incident, let's replay the situation that went on, let's replay this intro. Here's what John did, here's what John could have done better to make it a more compelling intro, okay? That's often how we think. But it's not a teachable moment, it's an encouraging moment. It's not teaching per se, it's saying you did this and experienced this in a way that allowed you to leverage your experiences in a really compelling way. In essence, you used pain and suffering as a fulcrum for something more powerful, which might cause us to look at our lives, understanding them from this perspective— And what does it mean to struggle? What does it mean to suffer? Often we'll ask, why is this happening to me? Rarely do we ask that same question about good things happening. But more importantly than that, it would seem that as a follower of Christ, I should expect to suffer. If Jesus suffered and I follow Jesus then this way of following, following Jesus Christ, should come with the expectation, I think, seems logical, more importantly biblical, that I will suffer. And when I suffer, there is a preferred response that is embodied by the people who are reading this letter for the first time. And the preferred response is almost as bracing as the notion of suffering itself. The answer, what do I do? What does it mean to struggle, to suffer? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, check this one out. If you don't have a Bible open in front of you, it might be worth reading this one to yourself. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's not a misprint. Since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That the response of what does it mean to struggle, what does it mean to suffer, is this two-part thing, this sense of compassion and this sense of joy. Again, so often our experience of suffering can leave us with this bitter, bitter taste in our mouth. Why is this happening to me? This is wrong. This shouldn't happen to me. And I get it. It's easy to understand how that can happen. But the why of what it means to struggle, to suffer, is to have compassion. And specifically, compassion on those who are in prison. Now, I think the implication directly from the text would be compassion for those who are followers of Christ who are in prison because of their faith. And I think we can make this a broader implication for our lives of visiting people in prison is a good idea. But to do this in the first century, to do this is to be implicated, right? If, if if you're the friend of someone who's been arrested and put in prison because they're a follower of Jesus Christ, and then you go visit them in prison, you might be identifying yourself as the kind of person that the government would also want to throw in prison. You might be exactly the kind of person that the government would also want to arrest. And I think we can argue compassion is risky. It's super risky. If I'm compassionate, what will you think of me? Try these two things on. In the last couple of weeks, we had two police officers who were murdered in New York City. They were responding to a domestic. How how can you not feel for that reality? How how can you not feel for that reality? This last week, Minneapolis, no-knock warrant. The person who wasn't named on the warrant laying on a couch, Middle of the night. He's dead. How how can you not feel compassion for that? How can you not feel compassion for for a widow who, who had to say goodbye to her husband, dying in the line of duty? How can you not feel compassion for a mother and a father who lost their child, who for all appearances, was doing nothing wrong. And even if he was doing something, how can we not have compassion? But it's risky, right? Because if I argue for compassion, you're like, oh, well, that means you're anti this, or you're anti that, or you're not with these guys, or you're not with those guys, or you're against this. No. (laughs) No, as a follower of Christ, I am compelled to have compassion How can we not live that way? But it's risky. It's so risky. It's so risky. Joy is the second thing. I don't know if this one's easier or if this one's harder. Joyful acceptance of my real property. The stuff to which I have title, the stuff for which I possess a deed, the stuff that I bought with my own money, that stuff that is so important, take it. Take it. It's nothing more than temporary baubles. I love temporary baubles. I love watches in particular. If if I made like a lot of money, I would sin in purchasing watches. One might argue I have already sinned with the watches that I own. I love watches. This particular watch is a mechanical automatic movement. It doesn't even take, keep time particularly well. <laughs> I have to adjust it every time I wear it. A $30 Timex would be a much better purchase in terms of accuracy. But I love this thing. The stuff that we love, the temporary baubles that we have, how hard this is to read. And how easy it was for the early church to look at the temporary baubles and see them for what they were. Pawns in a larger game. Now, the Roman Empire thought that in taking the real property of early followers of Jesus Christ, they would destroy the economical potential of anyone who followed Jesus Christ, creating a disincentive to being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you follow Christ and I take all that you have away from you, you're probably going to think about following Christ. That was the logic of the Roman government. the followers of Jesus Christ, <laughs> no, you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it. It's just a watch that keeps bad time. It's, it's, it's not worth that much. And I say this to my own heart more than anyone else's. What is more valuable, the material stuff I can touch or the immaterial that I cannot even see? It's almost one of those riddles, right? And, and many tempted, would be tempted to say, the material is more real because we can see it. The material is more real because I can sit on it. The material is more real because it protects me from the elements that exist in the world in which we live. But the author of Hebrews observes in his or her audience the simple salient fact that what is seen is hardly worth the time to even get stressed about it being gone. Instead, the attitude that's recorded is, it's take it, take it. You want it, take it. No court battle, no assertion of rights, no claims of citizenship. I'm going to challenge you with this next phrase. You want it or not? I'll let it go then. I think the first-century church might have a hard time with some people who call themselves Christians today. The confidence that this group had transcended physical existence. The confidence that this group had moved beyond wealth being the way you keep score. The confidence that this group had is, is now being used as leverage for the road ahead. Because they're invited, in spite of a stellar, sterling existence, to endure. Which suggests there might be hard times ahead, right? Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back isn't that a wonderful phrase we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls in the midst of all this the author of Hebrews keep it up, endure because you're not there yet the, the great reward is yet future, and what you need to need is to endure. The crazy thing about endurance and many other um, qualities that the Bible espouses, like compassion or love or patience or kindness, is they get improved in situations where they're hard to manifest. So if I challenge you to be compassionate and, and you're just compassionate to something that's easy for you, that may or may not be growth in your level to be compassionate. If, if, if I only challenge you to love, and, and, and in that you only love the things that are lovable, you may not improve in your ability to love. If the author of Hebrews says you need endurance... To achieve endurance means to push oneself further than they are at today. And there's all kinds of examples, okay? We're in the middle of the Olympics and all this kind of stuff. This character by the name of Mike McCastle, He is an individual who was in the Navy, and uh, he, uh, um, he applied for and, and was training to become a, a Navy SEAL. Blew up both of his knees in training. So his career's done. But he's taken on physical challenges, right, to fundraise for veterans for various programs. So he can do 5,804 pull-ups in 24 hours. He, he ran 50 kilometers in five hours with a 40-pound vest. He pulled a truck 22 miles in the Mojave Desert. Now, now you don't start, no one here today would probably pull a truck 22 miles. Like, hitch up to a Ford, 150, pull it down to Baxter, and pull it back up 22 miles. And this guy did it in a desert. So how do you achieve that Jesse Diggins, right? Female cross-country skier? Arena Gritzler said about cross-country skiing may be the truest test of overall athleticism. It calls upon almost every part of the body and every category of fitness simultaneously. Imagine combining the aerobic efficiency and tactical strategy of road cycling with the ability and agility of trail running and the power and coordination and core and upper body strength of gymnastics. All the while, flying up and down hills on 44 millimeter, that's like two inches wide, edgeless skis in sub-freezing temperatures among variable snow conditions. Add to that the technique, which is absurdly complex. It starts with the feet and goes all the way up to the fingertips as the skier explodes out of each stride and transfers their weight back and forth from ski to ski, their entire trunk contracting in sync with their lower half, nailing it, and it feels like floating. And you'll also feel like you're going to puke. Sign up for endurance. The writer of Hebrews says, just just a little bit longer. And you can do it. It's going to require a little bit more effort. And you can do it. Who you have become, who you have been, and what you will become, past performance indicative of future behavior. Who you are right now is probably what you will become, only more so. Significant mentor by the name of Ken Travilla told me that early in an internship with him. Who you are is what you will become, even more so. So, so, so really, if, if you want to end up life as a curmudgeon, then you should start being a curmudgeon right now. Because who you are is what you will become even more so. And then if you want to be the kind of person that other people want to be around when you're 80 years old, then, then maybe I should be the kind of person that others want to be around right now. Who you are is what you will become even more so. What you have been and what you will become. Past performance is indicative of future behavior. Your ability to endure right now probably bodes well for your ability to endure for the entire existence that you experience. That's what the author of Hebrews is arguing for. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hink, shrink, hink, heat, shrink tubing. I know that heat, shrink tubing is actually a good thing. Okay, so I'm going to use this opposite, you know, its common usage. Okay, shrink tubing is a good thing in the electrical world, but, but heat, shrink tubing, you expose it to heat, and it whoop, you know, it, it whoop, it contracts, it pulls back. It's like when you burn a straw, okay, it just like... Whoop, You know, the straw kind of goes away unless you have a metal straw, which my daughter does because she doesn't like plastic straws, but that's a different story entirely. No shrinking back. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, which actually leads us to next week. Verse 1, chapter 11, now faith. But that's seven days away. One of my favorite columnists is a gentleman by the name of David Brooks, who, uh, depending upon how he describes himself, he either describes himself as a wandering Jew or as a reluctant Christian, and and I would argue that that he is he's a conservative, um, but but he's willing to challenge. Okay, and, and so the, his most recent uh, column, "The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself," um, and in in some ways, when I read the article. I'm like, I identify pretty strongly um, with the dissenters. Um, The dissenters are, are saying, we think faith has kind of got this lust for political power that really isn't found in the Bible. At any rate... Check out this story. Mark Labberton is the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller um, engages with students from 110 different denominations and 90 nations, as well as our very own Amy. At Fuller Seminary, the future is already here, and that changes a lot. For example, after ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks against Egyptian Christians, some Americans at Fuller wanted to hold a memorial service. The Egyptian student said, in effect, what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of martyrdom. Brooks adds, the idea is foreign to most Christians, but the Egyptians led a celebratory service which was followed by communion in the form of a Japanese tea ceremony. This is not your father's evangelicalism. I wonder, because there's authors out there, right? Christian, Cobes, Dumais, Russell Moore, Beth Moore. These individuals who are are attempting to say, wait a second. What are we doing? And how do we reclaim what it means to be a follower of Christ in light of how followers of Christ have followed Christ? And while there's a challenge in this, I think there's hope. And it's one of the reasons why at Timberwood Church, we're committed to this reality of outreach, spiritual formation, and leadership. Tim Keller, also cited in the article, a good friend of David Brooks, says, one thing that we're missing in the church today is a commitment to spiritual formation, a a commitment to people really wanting to follow Christ with their lives and the totality of their lives, even though... It might mean you have to suffer. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because the church has always been able to see through the mess that's thrown up by society and and made this clarion call that that is embodied by this verse— But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Please pray with me. Father, how can we use our lives as a lever, as a fulcrum? How can we lift people closer to you and your Son? in your spirit. How can we reimagine the suffering that we have experienced as leverage for compassion and joy? It is a challenging text, O great God. But I am confident in your ability through your spirit to move in our lives. And I am grateful to be in a place that proudly declares its allegiance to Jesus Christ. Being a place where people can come to know Christ. Being a place where people can grow in their relationship with Christ. And a place where people who know Christ and are growing in Christ can lead, which often means service. Spirit, impress upon our hearts today what we need to hear Allow your words to get through. Allow the reputation of Jesus Christ to be enhanced in our lives. I thank you for this time, O oh Great God. In Jesus' name, Amen. I invite you to please.